You are listening to sermon audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net. Years ago, about this time of summer, um, when I found myself driving my girlfriend at the time, now my wife's, car down Highway 30. Little background for those of you who don't know my story um, and Jamie's story. Jamie and I um, are high school, college sweethearts. We started dating when we were 16. We dated for about six years before we got married, and this was in the middle of our college years of dating, most of which was long distance. And we were headed to Rainier, um, which is just across the river from Kelso Longview there on Highway 30, to see Jamie's great-grandma, who was so much fun. It was always good to be with her and to have time with her. And we were driving back from that. And we were driving in uh, my girlfriend's little Honda CVCC, which was kind of a forerunner to a Civic. If you can envision a a soup can with wheels, that kind of gives you an idea of the size of this car. I think the engine in the car was probably bigger than the actual car itself, and the engine wasn't real big. Just a little tinny car, and keep in mind, no no airbags, no safety restraining systems except for just basic seatbelts and a little bit of thin sheet metal all the way around you. So we're driving down Highway 30, and I'm actually driving. Jamie um, was having me drive that day, so I'm driving, and uh, traffic was heavy, and there are parts of Highway 30 that are two lanes, and you've got people coming at one another and opposing traffic real fast, and there's a lot of accidents that happen on Highway 30 Um, in no small part because of that. So we're cruising along. We're right by what used to be the Trojan nuclear power plant, Meridian there. The highway widens just a little bit there, but it quickly comes back to two lanes. There's all this traffic that's coming and rushing towards us when very, very quickly this white mid-sized car, and I remember the color because of how close it passed to us, started to drift over into our lane. And it was one of those where it was just, it was almost instantaneous. There really wasn't time to react. And this car just barely missed our car. And I don't want to over-exaggerate, but it felt like it was inches away. I mean, it was super, super close. And the reason we know it was so close is because it missed our car and it struck the 26-foot moving truck behind us. And hit it with such force that it forced this 26-foot truck to spin around and go off the highway. And then the, tr- the car itself careened out of control and came to rest right in the middle of that meridian in front of Trojan. And we're just kind of stunned and in shock We get out of the car, we run over there. The guy who was driving the white car is covered in blood, can't tell if he's dead or alive, literally. So I took off my t-shirt and I'm trying to staunch the flow of blood and someone somehow had a cell phone. This is just when cell phones were coming on the scene and some of you were thinking, how old is this guy? (laughs) Old compared to my, you know, with what my kids tell me, I'm a living fossil. But (laughs) so barely the cell phone age, right? Someone had the presence of mind to call 911 and pretty soon here rolled the ambulance and the fire truck and what have you. Didn't know if this guy was going to make it or not and they carted him away and as I was walking back to our little car to get back in and continue home, I, I found my hands shaking because I realized that I had had a near-death experience. You ever had one of those? I've actually had a couple of those in my life. In the sermon preview that I gave you on Facebook this week, I told you about another one. So if you're wondering what that is, go back and watch that. But I've had a couple of those in my life. Have you? Actually, you have. 
If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have had a near-death experience. And this is why, the end of Luke chapter 24, verses one through eight. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices that they had prepared and went to the tomb. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. And in their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you why he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. And then they remembered his words, and we remember his words together again this morning. The reality is, if you have chosen to receive Jesus Christ into your life as your Lord and Savior, you have been rescued, not only from an empty life, but from a dead life. The Bible declares that all of us start out in the same place, all of us, that we are dead in our sins, in our brokenness, and our selfishness, and that we are completely missing out on right relationship with God. And the only way to have right relationship with him and with other people is through Jesus Christ. And if you've received Jesus into your life, if you know him as your Lord and Savior, you have had a near-death experience. Your life has been saved, as the Bible says, from a life of brokenness and forever separation from this amazing God who created you and me to know him and to love him and to be blessed by him and to be in right relationship with him. You have had a near-death experience if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. So, now what? That's exactly what I was thinking as my girlfriend and I were walking back to her car in the days that followed. That was a near-death experience. Really made me evaluate. How am I living my life? What am I doing with my life? And that's very reasonable and necessary. When you realize your life has been spared, physically, spiritually, that should demand an evaluation and a response from us. Which brings us now to the passage we're gonna spend our time in, in Luke, as we wrap up this amazing series. Many months ago, when we were in Luke chapter 19, we did not have time to go through this parable together. It's called the parable of the 10 minas, which is familiar to a number of you I know. But this parable is exactly what we need to hear as we consider what we now do, what we now have, and how we live in light of the reality of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. What now? This parable is going to help us wrestle with that. So now you're going to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. We'll start with verse 10. This story may not be familiar to, to a number of you, and that's okay too. I want to give you kind of a key to understand the story here as we begin to go into this parable. You'll see a central character being referred to as a man of noble birth, the master, the king. Well, this is really talking about the Lord. People in the immediate context were the Jews, but there is a larger message for all of us, so we're in this story for sure. The minus is referring to a sum of money, but it's also, though, capturing all the resources that we have that God has given us. So with that in mind, 
I want you to look for the answer to the question of now what for those of us who know and love the Lord Jesus. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And while they were listening to this, he, he, Jesus, went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. So he said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. Well, he was made king, however, and then returned home. And then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, sir, your mina has earned 10 more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied, because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of 10 cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. And then another servant came and said, Sir, here's your mina. I kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you're a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and you reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I'm a hard man taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? So why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I come back, I could have collected it with interest? And then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him. Give it to the one who already has 10. Sir, they said, he already has 10. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Whew. Okay, well, let's begin to work our way back through this story. So Jesus tells this story. A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. What he's actually doing with this is he is reaching back into their history, and it's a history they all would have known. This was very, very culturally relevant and a frame of reference for all of them. Because history tells us that in 4 BC, Herod the not so good, but Herod the Great, died, and his two sons were vying for his throne. And so they went to Jerusalem, Antipas and Archelaus. Uh, excuse me, they went to Rome, yeah, to ask for Rome to appoint them as kings. The Jews actually sent a delegation after Archelaus to Rome to say, we don't want this guy to be our king. So Jesus is building on this frame of reference they would already know. Now this is where the story begins to diverge. In real life, Archelaus wasn't made king. Rome responded to that, responded to that feedback from the Jews, and so they didn't make him king. They gave him a lesser role. But in this story, this noble man does become king. And so it says that he was gone to a distant country, so lock that away. Presumably then, it means that he was gone for a long period of time as he entrusts this money to these folks to invest. And by the way, 10 minus was equal to about two to three months income. So whatever your source of income is, I want you to think about two to three months worth of that. 
that is given to you. And it is not yours. It is someone else's money. And you're asked to invest it for them. Now we begin to see some of the pieces of this parable. So what are just some of the truths and realities swimming around in this for us? Well, for starters, is this one. God shows grace to everyone. Who got the 10 minus? Everybody. And were they all given the same amount? Yes. Did they all have the same amount of time to invest it? Presumably a long time since the king went away to a distant country. Yes. And whose money really was it? The master's. The man of noble birth. So there's a reality here for all of us to understand. All of us have been given resources and a responsibility to invest those resources and to use those resources for the kingdom of God. You may have it, but God owns it. And this is a very countercultural message, especially in our culture, because in this day and age, we're told several things with our resources. Number one, your resources are how you defined your life. So what is in your bank account? What sits in your driveway? What hangs in your closet? What you go home to in terms of a home or apartment? That is really what determines the value and really success of your life. That's not what's being taught here. We're also told by our culture that all that stuff you have is yours. So you use it, I use it for my comfort, my betterment, for my quality of life. But that gets so profoundly distorted and it ends up really becoming all about us. We don't share, we don't give. Everything is for our betterment, our comfort, what have you. That is not the message here either. In fact, the message here is that we are to to give and to be generous just like this God is. Because these aren't just our resources, they're God's resources. We have them, but he owns them. And there's another amazing truth that gets overlooked in this. God generously rewards faithfulness. Let's take this for a test drive for a minute. Was God, or the master, fair to the servants? Was he fair in what he rewarded them with? No, he wasn't. He wasn't just fair. That's not going far enough. He was extravagantly generous. Two to three months worth of wages rewarded with responsibility for 10 cities. Do you know how disproportionate that is? That is a lavish reward. That's not just fair. That is profoundly generous. This master's a pretty cool guy. Our God is a pretty cool God. You ever wanted to be the mayor of Gresham and Portland and Eugene and Salem and, you know, you want 10 cities? Yeah, okay. We're teasing a little bit, but the principle is real. This God blesses Not just fairly, he blesses generously. He is perfectly generous and gracious, but he's also just. Which brings us to the third servant. Ten servants in this story, three are singled out as examples, and now we come to the third. And how does he respond to the master? I'm afraid of you. You're not fair. You're unreasonable. You're harsh. 
Really? But that's how he responds to him. And he completely misses the heart and character of the master. Did we just not see that this master eagerly blessed and rewarded those who were faithful with what he had given them? Is, is the third service reality or perspective true? Not at all. And the master very fairly and justly judges him by his own words because if the servant truly believed that, he would have at least taken the money and invested it so it got at least a little bit of interest, but by his actions, he showed that he really doesn't understand the character of the master because he doesn't know the master. Some of you might say, well, see, this proves it. This proves that you have to earn your way into the kingdom of God. This proves that God is looking at your resume and, and deciding whether you're a good enough person or not to enter the kingdom. That is categorically not what this is teaching at all. That's factually wrong. What this is revealing is where the servant's heart really was. His actions, his words are showing he never knew the master in the first place. Never knew him, never truly worked for him. So let's run with this for just a minute. Most of us don't have a paradigm for master in our culture, and that's very reasonably so. We don't have masters in our culture. Okay. Someone of noble birth, we can kind of get that. A king, nah, I don't really have that, that paradigm as well. How about father? Because all those labels apply to the same God. So what do you think of when you think of father? Let's take a step further. What do you think of when you think of loving father? I know for a number of you, because you've told me, that is a complete oxymoron in your mind. Those two things do not go together, loving father. When you think of father, you think of father who is manipulative, maybe even abusive, Selfish, uncaring, uninvolved, passive, absent. And based on what continues to happen in our culture, of course you do. Because in over half the families now in our culture, dad is either completely absent, or he's uninvolved, or he's abusive, or he's passive. And so your frame of reference for father is that, and this is, this is profoundly important. Scripture is what reminds us and defines for us what a loving father really is like. Every father, even the best fathers, fall short. I sure do. And so therefore, you and I have to define father by what God's word says, because you see, the third servant showed that he did not truly understand the character and heart or even really know his master. And the same can be true for you. Too many of you define father by your own frame of reference or your lack thereof. Scripture has to define for you who God is, what he's like, and what his character is like. You see, the servant's words and works really revealed his heart 
and who he was worshiping. It really revealed whose team he was on, quite frankly. So what do we do with the resurrection? Well, the principal thing we need to do is decide whose team we're gonna be on. And really, by looking at your life and mine, we should be able to tell whose team you're on. By, by how you serve. Do you and I serve ourselves exclusively? Do we make life all about us? Or do we serve others? Or to take this to a place where Scripture took it some weeks ago, if you'll remember, do you serve other people when there's nothing in it for you? No reward, at least in the here and now, seemingly. No recognition, no thank you, no acknowledgement, no credit. Are you willing to serve them? What do you call someone who serves in the face of those realities? Distinctive. Nobody does that. God does. And God's people do. That's living distinctively for a God who has served you, which begs the question of all of us, including me. So with all that God has given you, you may have it, but he owns it. What are you doing with it? What are you doing with what he has entrusted to you? All your resources. Because once again, too often in our culture, we are told to be disaffected and dissatisfied and unhappy and not content and to have this deficit deficiency mentality with our lives. We're always told to focus on what we don't have or what we don't have or what we'd like to have but aren't experiencing. Okay, let's flip that for a minute. What do you have? What has God given you? What has he blessed you with that you can use to serve others? Well, there is a common denominator that is true for every single one of us. And it is probably your most valuable commodity. I would serve to say it's probably mine, at least with how I live my life, and that's my time. Every single one of you have 24 hours every day all of us. So what are we doing with that time? How are we using that? Not just to serve ourselves, but to serve other people. I mean, let's look at some specific application to this. Some of you have been a part of churches where the 80-20 rule is in effect, where that is 20% of the people are basically doing 80% of the work that's going on. I am so glad to tell you grace isn't like that. Grace has never been like that. There are a ton of you who are engaged and involved in ministry within, within the walls of this church. And if you are um, a guest here, you're considering calling Grace home, I, I hope that you will call this place home with the expectation that you're gonna roll up your sleeves with the rest of us and serve other people because of how God has served you. Because that's, that's part of what being a body is all about. And unashamedly, as we head into the fall here and we start ramping up so many things around here, um, there's plenty of opportunities for you to serve here. Let me just give you a, a couple. 
We have a production team here on Sunday mornings, runs the PowerPoint, runs the video camera that sends the live feed to um, the rest of the facility. We're looking to build teams for those, and we need, we need more folks to step forward to do that. Our preschool nursery, do you realize that on any given Sunday, it takes at least 30 people to staff our preschool and nursery? A number of you have taken that be fruitful and multiply thing from Genesis, and, and you took that seriously. <laughs> And you are growing the church. And our nursery, God bless you. And preschool, I'm done. I've had three. We're done. Um, The church continues to grow. And we need folks willing to hold babies and, and love kids and be with them. Our journey class, which is our community outreach, with focusing on life skills that starts at the end of the month here on Wednesday nights, we need folks who would be willing to serve there. And so what I'm gonna ask you to do is reach out and grab that Serving with Grace card in front of you. And some of you are thinking, I ain't gonna do that. Well, just humor your pastor and just, just pretend like you're gonna grab it. How's that? Would you grab that out of the seat back in front of you? I want you to hold on to that because we're gonna do something with it here in just a bit. But there are a number of you who are serving within the walls of this place. A ton of you. That's awesome. In fact, As we continue on here, I'd like you to be thinking about how you're serving within the walls of this church, and I'd like you to write that down. I'd like you to also think through how we're serving together this community around us. A number of us this last weekend gathered together over at East Gresham Elementary to help clean up the school. And it's a fantastic story and a story I want us to take just a minute to step back and celebrate. So here are some sights and sounds from that. Grace Community Church and the service that they provide for our students and our staff here at East Gresham Elementary School. Especially at the start of the year when classroom teachers are excited about setting up their rooms, Grace Community Church has graciously come in and given their time and being of service to the teachers to support um, students having a warm and welcoming environment. Um, Students also feel pride in their school when they come back to school and the grounds look so tremendous. The lawns are trimmed, the bushes look great. They just give them a sense of pride.
grateful for Grace Community Church and the service they provide to us, not just on Community Care Day, but throughout the year. We're very fortunate and we indeed feel blessed. Yeah, that's pretty fun, isn't it? But that isn't to, to pat ourselves on the back or necessarily to look for credit, but I show that to you to help you see that that's part of a larger mosaic of how we serve this community because it's not just community care day. Just specific to East Gresham Elementary, when we get into December and Advent conspiracy, we will do a community Christmas party for all the families and faculty and staff of that school and give a ton of stuff away to them. We have backpack blessings on a weekly basis, gives, provides food for over 50 families at East Gresham. We have a food bank that we host and partner with. Again, distributes food to, to families at East Gresham. We're not just doing this because we're nice people trying to do nice things. We have been served by a God who has changed our lives and therefore we serve other people in his name. And we have a story to tell. And all those things combined together create opportunities for us to tell the Jesus story of what our God has done for us, why we serve the way we do. So are you sharing that story when he gives you opportunity to? You know, from a survey that we took many years ago here at Grace, and there's still a number of you who are still here, when you responded to that survey, when it comes to telling the Jesus story, to sharing your faith, a number of you said, yeah, I want to do this, and I know God wants me to do it, but I don't know how to do it. And I, and I get that. Those opportunities will come to you at the times when you are the most busy, the least prepared, you know, unexpectedly, um, when you're probably tired, when you don't feel eloquent and articulate. But by way of example, if someone were to ask you, could you tell your Jesus story in two minutes or less? You proverbially get on an elevator with someone and you start talking and all of a sudden it goes there and the Holy Spirit serves up this opportunity and you go, yeah, or do you know how to do that? Do you, do you have a Jesus story worth telling? Because if you do know him, you do have a story worth telling. But we realize and recognize that there are a number of you who probably don't feel comfortable with doing that. So coming this fall, we're going to be offering some little mini seminars to put tools in your tool belt to help you think through and be prepared for to tell the Jesus story when that opportunity comes. Because bringing the kingdom isn't just about serving and doing things, it's also about declaring and telling this amazing story that we get to live out together. 80% of the people who live within three miles of our church do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. We got lots of opportunity to tell that story, so let's take advantage of it when we do because the reality is this, and this is an unmistakable message with this story, and it's how the story ends. All of us, all people are ultimately gonna be accountable to him. In the immediate context of when Jesus was telling this story as he was starting his trek towards Jerusalem, this was another profound pointed direct warning to the Jewish people as a nation. And they chose not to recognize him for who he was, not to believe in who he said he was. And so just like he said it would happen, in AD 70, history tells us that the Roman Empire raised the temple to the ground. It was destroyed. And the Jewish people, for many of them, lost everything 
just like this parable talks about. Because this amazing God kept coming to them again and again and again, and they kept refusing his grace again and again and again. And it's not a place you want to be because you're so missing out if you don't know this amazing God. The most important decision you can make in your life is to know him and to receive him and to allow him to bless you because no one wants to bless your life more than he does. There's another part of that story that we started our time with, with my girlfriend Jamie and I and having a near-death experience. It turns out that the guy who almost hit us did survive and he went to trial because he was driving drunk. And he, for some reason, decided that it would be a good idea to not have a lawyer but to represent himself. So here he was standing before the judge with all this evidence against him and rightfully so, the judge, being a fair, just judge, found him guilty. He was declared guilty, and then he was sentenced for what he had done. And that was justice. That was fair. That was reasonable. But what would the story be like if that judge, after rightfully pronouncing him guilty, and passing sentence, then took off his robes and came down and said, I will take the punishment. My life for his. I will give my life for him. Nobody does that. Or do they? Isn't that your story? And isn't that mine? Isn't that exactly what Jesus Christ did through his death, burial, and resurrection? This God who owes us nothing but what we rightfully deserve for a lifetime of brokenness and selfishness and self-focus and worshiping anything but him instead offers himself and then sacrifices himself on our behalf so that he can take our judgment and we can get his redemption and blessing and life. Folks, that's the gospel. And that's what these communion elements declare every time we celebrate communion together. These very realities that we're remembering and that we're thinking through here this morning because the older I get, the more life I live, the more I experience, the more I am coming to the conclusion that love, true love, always costs. It just, it does. Love costs. And what stands before us on these communion tables is a demonstration of a God who is willing to pay the highest price, his life for ours, because he loves us so much. So once again, he comes to you and he says, will you believe? Will you choose to receive him into your life as your Lord and Savior? And for those of us who know him, our lives are now radically, completely changed. And all of a sudden, we don't just have our stuff we now worship a God who owns our stuff and therefore we serve him with that stuff and with our very lives. And that's what we celebrate here this morning. Why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you why he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day, raised again. And then they remembered his words. And we remember his words once again this morning. He's 
not dead. He's alive. He's been resurrected. And daily he resurrects you to a life of joy and hope and peace by serving him through serving others because he first served you and me. So let's go live for him now. Let me pray his blessing over you. Jesus, thank you so much that once again, you show us your grace by coming to us and offering us that grace again. And I pray for anyone here who does not know you as their Lord and Savior, that they would choose to know you by receiving you into their heart and life, by simply asking you to come. And Lord, as we go from here, would we live distinctively for you? For those of us who know you, would we serve other people without looking for reward or recognition or even a thank you? Because someday you will lavishly reward us for our faithfulness to you. And we thank you for that. And thank you for this time we've had together. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. So go and live for him. Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net.